Welcome to the fourth episode of the Same Therapy Podcast by Telebehaviorhealth.us, episode that we're calling First Responders and Mental Health. In this episode, we bring back Telebehaviorhealth.us therapist and CEO Susie Morosevich, along with therapist and clinical director Kelly Skripchik. Now, we're going to be discussing those whose mental health that often goes neglected are country's first responders, specifically our underpaid and overworked EMTs and paramedics. We're fortunate to hear from Chuck Primer, a paramedic with 20-plus years experience in Kent County, Michigan. He shares his personal story and sheds light on the challenges first responders face in their work as it relates to mental health and their barriers to accessible and affordable behavioral health care. We do want you to be a part of the next conversation, so please leave a comment or drop us an email at Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, at telebehavioralhealth.us. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Same Therapy Podcast. This is episode four. Uh, I am Corey Hart. I'm the CMO of telebehaviorhealth.us. We have our producer, Abby, on here as well, and then we have a couple of very special guests. We have... Susie Kelly, who, uh, if you've been listening to this podcast, you've met before. Uh, today's topic is first responders as related to uh, behavioral health and healthcare. We'll be touching on a couple of different things. Also, it, timely in the conversation right now, as uh, we talk about defunding police, or actually what what we as a public are expecting our first responders to do on the front lines and handling the behavioral healthcare crises that are occurring in our general public in that. So we'll be probably touching on a lot of things here. I'd like to introduce our very special guest, Chuck Primer. We're going to get to you in, in just a moment. First, we're going to get a quick hello from Susie and a quick hello from Kelly. Real quick, two seconds on, uh, uh, on who you are in the organization for telebehaviorhealth.us. Susie? I am the founder and CEO of Telebehavioral Health US, and I'm also a clinician in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Fantastic. And uh, Kelly? And I'm one of the clinical directors here at Telebehavioral Health, and I am also providing um, clinical work as well, and I'm located in mid-Michigan. Fantastic. Now, Chuck, uh, you were referred to us, and we're really, really grateful for the generosity of your time tonight. You were referred by a friend of Susie's, and we're told that you have a very interesting story. So maybe part of your, you can do your quick intro and then, and then get us into that story. My name is Chuck Kramer. I am a paramedic in the Kent County area. I started working in October of 1996 and working full-time as a paramedic up until January 24th, 2019. Why I can be so precise in the time that I was uh, stopped being a paramedic is that at 2 a.m. in the morning, I was driving back from a hospital after I delivered a patient, and I was struck by a drunk driver. They came up behind my ambulance and in the speeds probably in excess of 100 miles an hour and went to swerve overcorrected and then crashed in the side of my ambulance as i was driving uh pushed me off the road i, I rolled three and a half times uh, landing on the driver's side down i was partially ejected from the vehicle and pinned between the vehicle and the ground that's a 10,000 pound ambulance and yeah well i'm a big guy but not that big and it took um it took the fire department about an hour and a half to two hours to extricate me out of the ambulance. And then I was taken to the hospital. I spent a couple of days in the hospital and I spent the next 19 days at Mary Freebed learning how to move and walk again. What were the extent of your injuries from that? I had lung contusions. I had internal just bruising uh, damages. I have uh, crush injuries to my pelvis with uh, crush injuries to, to my sciatic nerve which is my outside of my left leg is still numb. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, a posterior dislocated left ankle and it was fractured on about seven spots. That's currently has some stainless steel plates and it. So it just crushed you. I, I can't say crushed because my pelvis didn't break, but the compression injuries were intense. Um, I, and I've had bruising. My kidneys were bruised. I was, mm -hmm. uh, your blood for, you know, a week. Uh, it was, yeah, I took a serious damage, serious hit, and I'm currently still out of work right now because, you know, before the accident, I could pick up a 200-pound patient. Right now, I can only pick up 40 pounds, and I have to have that 14 inches off the floor to be able to achieve that. I can't even kneel down or bend down to take care of a patient, much less walk down a hill or anything like that. So that's my story. You went from one minute you're driving the ambulance 
to the yeah. next minute you're riding and we will a couple hours later you're riding in one and having that perspective of being a first responder but then also being you know saved by first responders yeah i, w- I was a first responder that night just got done taking a lady to the hospital because mm-hmm. she was sick needed to go my partner at that point in time was doing an evaluation on her because she was wanting to become a senior medic within the company mm-hmm. and it was going really well and then in the blink of an eye it all changed yeah now would you now chuck would you be able to uh tell us a little bit about um your your more extended career as a paramedic oh yeah i started off in uh october 1996 as a paramedic here in the area and i was able to work my way up from a junior paramedic to a senior paramedic being able to work with emt basics and then i became a supervisor paramedic where i was in charge of you know scheduling quality assurance, quality improvement, supplies. I've done pretty much every job that can be done there in the ambulance company as, you know, working as a paramedic. Uh, 12 years ago, I got my critical care paramedic license. I was a field training officer for quite a long time, since about 2000, uh, training new people to come in and how to be paramedics and how it works from schooling to the field. What is it like to be a paramedic in terms of the impact on the individual? The impact on the individual is it varies. You know, I look back now, it's how well you deal with it. If there's people that were, would come on and work two or three shifts and they're like, no, nope, I'm done. I'm going home. They never, and they never show back again. Um, there's people like myself that hang, you know, the work for 23 years, 24 years. And it's, we're, we're okay. And I say, okay, we're going to assault. The, the impacts vary. I mean, everybody suffers from the trauma. Everybody suffers from seeing things that you really shouldn't see. For us to have a good day, somebody has to be having a really bad day. You're unidentified heroes. Like people live and survive things because of you and don't even know who you are. You're just kind of this anonymous hero. It's a thankless job. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody wants to see us. Nobody wants to talk to us. We're like the vultures up on the tree. Nobody wants to, you know, we're ugly. Just keep your distance. Go away. Stay there. But when you're wanted, you're wanted right now and you're never close enough. Right. Um, and now we want you, now we want you there. And then they get mad at you the whole time you're doing things. Sometimes they're grateful. But then when you drop them off the hospital, you usually don't hear from the patients again. You don't usually know their outcomes. Yeah. And you're off again and doing something else. It's a thankless job from the yeah. side. And Chuck, now what is, what's the culture been historically with providing this service to the community? Meaning how are you guys taken care of? Um, and prepared and for and like prepared the secondary and trauma. Or, or like the aftermath, because I think that sometimes you're not prepared for, for the scenes that you're driving up on, but there's still this aftermath that we need to address. What has that been like for you? I have experienced it, I think, on both ends of the pendulum, and it's swinging to the better right now. Initially, when I first started, it was suck it up, buttercup. If you can't handle it, this job's not for you. Get out. Man up. Suck it up. Just do the job and get done with it, you know. You don't have any feelings for it. Don't, you know, don't worry about it. Hugely suppressed yeah. everything. If you can't handle it, just leave. And blaming it on you if you couldn't handle the scene or handle the situation or if you got emotional because you saw something. It was suck it up, buttercup. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look at that one. That one's weak and we'll weed, we're going to weed it out mm-hmm. of the herd now. And then there was always that, there was a lot of peer pressure on that to, you know, just be good. Well, then you find coping mechanisms, but usually not the healthy ones. A lot of people revert to alcohol or, you know, recreational drugs on the side, although that got tested, you know. So basically everybody's stuck with alcohol. And there's lots of heavy drinking. This Uh, expectation that you're supposed to directly observe human suffering and not be affected by it at all. Now, through the years that has changed, and recently in the past five or six years, it's really taken a big swing with them recognizing that we need to take care of these people. If you want people to stick around, you need to take care of them mentally. You need to provide some services mm-hmm. for them. So a little bit of counseling, at least access to it. After the big calls, they have the critical incident stress debriefing groups. And mm-hmm. listening to them, going to those, I've been to three or four, it's helpful to mm-hmm. understand you're not the only one going through this. Yeah. And to have an outlet for that, it is extremely helpful. And the people are becoming more and more trained to do so. And also the insurance companies are allowing us to have, you know, counseling with the insurance now. When I first started, Mm -hmm. 
Hustling was paid on your own. There was nothing Are there. Are you serious? Now, uh, yeah. When did that change? I don't know, quite a while ago. But then again, going to a counseling is also has its own particular challenges too, because usually you need to talk to somebody three to four weeks, we can get you in. I need to talk to somebody kind of right now. So the hotline's always made a better choice for most everybody. I mean, you might be working a shift where you wouldn't be available to go to counseling at traditional hours. And I think in those kind of working conditions, you're supported so little and taking care of yourself. It's the last thing you want to do is drive into a therapist's office if you're exhausted and burned out and sit there and talk about it and then have to, it's one more thing you have to do weekly. Right. Most of the time you just want to go home and sit in front of the TV or loud music and just try to clear your head and you, you just sit there and it changed your perspective on towards family, towards going yeah. out. Most of the paramedics that I know, for the most part, are antisocial. They'll only go hang out with other paramedics. They mm-hmm. try not to hang out with other people because, you know, people don't understand what you're doing. Well, and I think and being they able to debrief, like, too. Like, having you can't de- really debrief with your family. You can't debrief with mm-hmm. people other than really other paramedics. Uh, so that's why we hang out with other paramedics, so we can get that debrief in. And the biggest support system to us is our friends, is our peers, to talk to them. That's the mm-hmm. biggest thing. Well, and that just kind of goes into the whole, when, you, when you're around people who have been traumatized and they're experiencing those like trauma sensations, those implicit traumatic experiences where like they'll see a scene in their mind or, or they'll do the re-experiencing. When you're with a group of people who are also experiencing it, you don't have to explain it. It's yeah. like this, this, this bro code, like this. Well, like, I mean, explaining something that I have a rule of thumb, which is nothing makes me more fill in the blank than having to explain why I'm fill in the blank. You know, if I'm angry and I have to explain it, I just get more mad. I'm wondering if seeing a therapist would have at some point in time put you in that category of, you know, not sucking it up, buttercup. If to be known that you were going to therapy would have shown, would have been weakness. Would You would have mm-hmm. been weak. And throughout the years, I've gone a couple times to see some therapists. Mm-hmm. And it, the early ones was not, it wasn't well received. Like, oh, you have to go to therapist now. What's wrong with you? You, you can't mm-hmm. ha- handle this, you can't get a job. So you kind of get put, you know, shunned away from it. Um, and then I've gone, you know, since then. And on my own, but then you're very quiet about it. You don't tell anybody you're going to therapy. You don't do anything and you keep it, you tell your spouse to shut up about it. Don't say anything to the guys or the gals to work with. Just be quiet. Just leave it alone. As you were talking about like being a supervisor later on, is there training as a supervisor to be able to pull people aside and say, Hey, there are some resources made available to you. Once we had the resources available. Yes, we did. Uh, we had the, the pamphlets for that, and we had hotlines. But before that, there was really nothing available to us. They didn't make anything available to us. I took, I tried to take care of my people, and I talked to talk to them about, you know, about this. Hey, it's going to hurt. It's going to suck. Call me if you need to call me at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning. Please feel free to call me. I'll talk to you. I understand this, and I talked to them, and I and just we tried to do our own therapy in house because the people that actually cared about everybody, and there was more than just me. We so, Chuck, I, I want to pick your brain about something. This is kind of not to tangent too wildly, but there's there's um, there's a kind of a step in between therapy and, and not being in therapy, which is peer recovery coaching. Are you familiar with that? The name is familiar with me. We've done that in uh, infancy without any training for that, but we've I think we've all done that. Well, that's, it sounds like that's what you're doing naturally. And so peer recovery coaching is something that a lot of insurance companies or some insurance companies will pay people who, well, you may not have a degree in social work or, but you're, but you're a certified peer recovery coach, which means that people in, 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 in groups that have a hard time getting into services because they might not be understood or that shame or stigma, or they would rather talk to somebody who's been through it. Um, is, is something that we provide other populations like sexual assault survivors, domestic violence survivors, um, substance abuse populations. It sounds like for first responders, developing a peer recovery model would be something that would be really beneficial so that those of you that were already doing it automatically could get reimbursed for it. That would be really amazing. 
I, I think yeah, that would be that really would be, amazing. I think we just Susie, created yeah. something yeah. new. Yeah. Did you just hire Chuck? Like, <laughs> did, you, did you just like offer him a job? So one of the things that we're doing, Chuck, on a side note, is we're creating a second business um, in the next few months. And we're going to be uh, credentialing that with insurance companies and Medicaid and Medicare as a facility so we can add services like case management and peer recovery coaching and other prevention services. And I really would like to sit down and talk with you more about then because it seems like there's a huge need for that with first responders. And I would love to pick your brain more about that. I'd be willing to help you pick my brain on that one. And I, I'm interested in that too. I think that maybe we could actually create something really great together. Yeah, I really do. Definitely. Yeah. But I know we have more to talk about on the clinical side of things. We had talked about the re-experiencing and Chuck, before we started recording, you know, I, I had shared that my friend who was a first responder, once his trauma was really triggered and everything you're saying, it, it, and especially the suck it up buttercup is very much the mentality. And a lot of the stuff you're saying are themes that I've learned that he experienced as well. That kind of validates what, what you were saying, but one of the things that he said was once his trauma was triggered, he would dr drive into the store, driving to the therapy um, was almost impossible because he would drive by multiple accident scenes. And Kelly, what you were saying was cognitively, we, we might not be aware that we're being triggered, but sensory wise, it's being triggered. Do you want to talk more about that? So the way that our brain is made up is we have this survival component in the brain and it is called the amygdala and our brain is very, very adaptive. And what the amygdala does is it um, wants to protect us and it wants to keep us safe. If we're ever in a traumatic situation or a situation where safety is at risk and this can be secondary trauma too so just by witnessing somebody else being traumatized our amygdala is kind of doing the same thing it is remembering the details of the trauma so intricately it's remembering the sights the smells the 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 things that we see the things that we hear things that we touch the thing that we're wearing mm -hmm. um all the senses. All the senses because our brain wants to protect us. So in that protecting though, what happens is we can be trying to transition from this traumatic situation and then living a normal life and we're having a difficult time doing that. We're having a difficult time transitioning from being in this really, really scary situation and living a normal life because our amygdala has remembered all of these details. That can cause three symptoms of PTSD. And we call it re-experiencing, hyperarousal, or avoidant behavior. And so those are the symptoms for PTSD. Um, so what we're talking about here is the re-experiencing or hyperarousal, where you'll get triggered and then you'll have this physiological reaction, like you're living through that same experience all over again. And it's such a big response. Well, and, and it trauma too, it's, it's not that it's um, all or nothing when that's triggered. It's a faucet. So if, if I'm forced to stand on the ledge of a cliff for a few seconds, knowing that I can back up and I'll be safe, all of those physiological symptoms that would be my brain would be sending my body saying, don't walk off the cliff because that's movement towards death. All of those things would increase the closer I got to the cliff. Now, if I had to stay on the cliff for a while, that cortisol norepinephrine is continu continuing to be produced. So a few seconds on the edge of the cliff with full autonomy to back off, not much stress and cortisol there, just a few symptoms of woozy feeling, shakiness, gone after I step away. But if I'm out there for a couple hours, I'm going to have a hard time sleeping that night. That's going to have lasting impact on my functioning. Something where you're experiencing human suffering over and over and over again, it's just a constant production. And so you could be re-experiencing and not even really knowing that you're re-experiencing. Is that fair? Yeah. It might just be a physiological change in what you're doing, which is then where the substances would come in and the trying yeah. to cope with that. Well, um, and that's the avoidant piece of it because, yep. because we want to avoid pain and seek pleasure. 
Chuck, one thing that, that people, when they experience trauma that they do is they stay really, really, really busy and oftentimes have a difficult time falling asleep because it's another symptom of it or staying asleep. And they just keep going and going and going and going and going. And then what happens is something happens where the world is quiet and they can't stay busy. And there's no, the avoidance tactic kind of goes away. And that's when we see trauma might not be present for years and years and years. And the person could seem like they're doing totally fine because they stay busy doing something they're good at or work. But then as soon as that trauma is triggered, whether it's five, 10, 15, 25 years later, the person just falls apart. And so I'm, I'm wondering if, if you could speak to that in the context of being a first responder. Yeah, I've seen you smile as we're talking, almost like you're connecting to things that we're saying here. Absolutely connecting to things that you're saying. The, the trauma responses, the trigger responses of, you know, I've walked into places, uh, mechanic shops, walk into those places, smells like a car accident because of the hot yep. metal and the hot, and hot oil and the antifreeze all mixed in there. Um, I've walked into other places where there's, you know, uh, as an anatomy lab and they were dissecting cow hearts, but that I didn't, I didn't know it, but that huge smell of blood just keyed off, um, on me, but the, all those things are correct. So they absolutely sound, uh, valid. And many people I know that, that have, that have those things. We all stay busy. We all, we all immerse mm-hmm. ourselves in our work. When things get bad, we don't know what to do. We go back to go to work again. We immerse ourselves in it even deeper. Mm-hmm. And to work, you know, everybody says, oh, I work 40 hours a week. Uh, well, most everybody I know works, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. We have some people that work up to 90 hours a week. A lot of people I know have worked, you know, a lot of hours every year, like yeah. three, three to four hours every year, which is triple the amount of a normal person working a 40-hour work week. Is, is it possible some- to have like a, a quote-unquote normal life as a first responder, as a paramedic? I have no idea. I I am. I've been doing this for so long. I don't know if it's normal or not. I I would mm. to me and my all my coworkers. We think it's normal. It's absolutely mm. normal. But I, we have people from the outside that look at us and who goes, "You guys are really messed up. You guys have some really do some really weird things." Like I said, I've been I've been off work for you know a year. I look at back at it now and no, it's not a normal life. It really is not. It's I could only do the job because my wife allowed me to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes away from family. It takes away from everything. Being a first responder, your company, the job that you work at, she's a cruel mistress. She mm-hmm. demands everything. She wants more. She wants more of your time. She wants you. She, are you guys you, unionized? You, we are not, no. So can you talk a little bit about, or any thoughts on unionization and how, it, how if it would help um, you guys with with the support and care that you need i don't know that that's something you, you can look at i'm not a i don't have a good answer to that one there's been unions have been come across that come through a couple times but the company i worked at and most companies here are such small companies mm-hmm. you know we have 50 60 employees the others have you know a couple hundred employees and usually have to hook up with you know i think the one that came through was uh produce workers of America or something like that. Service workers of America. They didn't offer us a lot. There was nothing here. They really could offer us. It's like, well, you can get, you know, you can have this, but you know, unions are going to do say what you want, better working hours. There's pros and cons cons to unions too. I think it depends on who you ask. This particular workforce, uh, Susie, I mean, it's something that I'm, I'm sure you're pretty familiar with. Like there's, there's an overabundance of these people coming through, you know, with the minimal amount of training that it, takes to get in and then what is it uh, chuck it's like uh, barely minimum wage when you start right yeah it's barely minimum wage when you start um to become a paramedic it's two years of schooling in your life uh, an internship that's a couple hundred hours and then state testing and there's a long grueling process it takes two years to com- about complete it like an emt doesn't take two years right no emt takes about a year and and still again like how much how much benefit in pay is it to go for that extra uh year for a paramedic um about double okay it's, um, it's, a, it's a good increase yeah yeah you, you go from like 925 well you get up to yeah they started about 18 now it reminds me of our nukes program when it started which was let's have our lowest paid people in charge of like something that requires a really high degree of competence and care 
with a lot of risk involved. Well, and I also remember hearing from someone that not everyone gets the health insurance coverage. Not everyone gets the mental health coverage. Like you have to be employed there full time. So even if there's the, the, the mental health care, not everyone's getting it. Not everyone has access to it. And unfortunately, it's a highly unregulated industry, especially when you do I was like say, non-medical it seems really emergency. fragmented. Yeah. Let's say for the companies around here in the area, I think they really want to do the best for their employees and they try to offer the best they possibly can. But it's the insurance companies that we bill to because we provide a service for, for personnel who are paid by a third party. It's yeah. Oh, mixed you're preaching to the choir. Yeah, because we're not, we're not listed as medical professionals. It's Our job listings fall underneath, um, oh, what was it? Clerks and cashier, you know, you know, like your stock persons and stuff like that. We're not, we're not listed as medical professionals. Um, we're listed as just, you know, it's not even professional listings. So we don't, they don't give us the big reimbursements and they don't give the companies reimbursements. It looks yeah. like it's, it's ambulance services, special care transport, um, ground mileage they reimburse for. But yep. it's more about the vehicle than you guys. So uh, I'd like to uh, I'd like to get back to uh, elements of your personal story there, Chuck. And then Susie, yeah. brought, Susie brought something up uh, really interesting, and and as it relates to your story, yeah, you had mentioned as far as like trauma, and then also what happens oh, yeah. when things go silent, when you mm-hmm. have time. Now, because of your accident. Corey, before we go into this, I just want to have a disclaimer that I, I don't want to talk too much about Ch- Chuck's trauma because it can be something that can be very destabilizing for the individual. So I just want to ask permission really quick. Chuck, are, are you comfortable? Are you at a good spot? Is it okay if we explore some of the ways that your trauma came out? Absolutely. I, okay. I, I am in a good spot for that. I've been for the past year, I've been doing counseling to work through a lot of this. And yeah, it, yeah I'm in a good spot now. Good. Okay. Sorry, Corey. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just... No, I appreciate that. So the world went quiet and what happened, Chuck? The world went quiet. And while I was on enough painkillers, I didn't feel anything. I didn't remember half the people that showed up in my room. Mm-hmm. Everything was good. Um, once I started coming off some of the, the painkilling drugs and and started to think, be able to think about things. I went from being a very highly useful person mm-hmm. to, to be a not useful person. What was I going to do? What was my purpose? I didn't have a purpose then. And everything slowed down. I didn't have to spend, you know, 60 hours a week at work. I, what do I do now? And what, what it, did you, you know, do? I, I sat in a wheelchair and I, or I laid on a couch with my leg elevated above my heart. So that's what the doctors needed me to do. Mm-hmm. And they just left so much time. Yeah. For the first, well, I got rested. I know that. Um, I caught up on a lot of sleep. <laughs> Good. So I couldn't sleep at all. After I would fit in, I'd sleep in 15, 20 minute bursts. Yeah. It's, and that's a whole separate um, po- podcast is the role of sleep with this. And that's something that I yeah. want to put into that peer recovery coaching stuff too, is, is, is discussing the, the need for sleep. But a lot of people don't respond to, well, stop drinking caffeine, turn off your screen and just go to sleep. We have, we all have different circadian rhythms. And so I, I imagine that sleep would affect first responders a lot. And sleep disruption is linked to the, like the leading six causes of death in the United States. The, the, the hour the, that we, the most dangerous week in the United States is the week that we lose an hour of sleep. It's one of the most impacted days in terms of behavioral health crises. And, um, it's it's the reason why Arizona won't observe it is because they don't want to increase their heart attack rate that week. Um, sleep is is an issue, and if we all stay awake for seven days straight, we'd all be psychotic. Well, when you get bad sleep over time, you start to creep into real high anxiety that can turn into kind of manic like feelings, and if not treated, can go into psychosis. And so, I'm interested in. in I mean, we could have a whole separate discussion on sleep, but yeah, Susie, sleep. This um, would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Because I read a stat, especially with first responders, they have like 25% more chance or, or likelihood of ideation. Oh, well, I mean, that's, so, um, I would imagine that the suicide rates with first responders are high. I would imagine that, um, substance abuse rates are very high and, 
Um, I mean, it depends on what kind of ideation. So like passive fleeting ideation, like that's like next Tuesday for most people right now. You know, like, oh, I wish it wasn't around. You know, it'd be better off without me. Um, I don't want to wake up tomorrow. But then you move into like the, the existential crisis on top of the trauma type of stuff that I would imagine Chuck experienced, which was I have no purpose. You know, I, I, I'm now withdrawn from my supports. I'm not going to work. And I, it's a, it's a lot of quiet with a lot of trauma under my belt. And he you also know, had and, a team under him too, that he was uh, supervising. Yeah. And, and I've got to be there yeah. for others. Um, you know, I, you, how can you serve others if, if you can't serve yourself? And yeah. Yeah. So sleep, I mean, sleep is linked to every mental health symptom across the board. If you're not sleeping, you're going to be more suicidal. P- end of story. Yeah. We didn't, you know, even when I was working, we didn't sleep much. It was, you know, EMS is, well, they say earn money sleeping, but it's earn money not sleeping. <laughs> you sleep in 20, 30 minutes, you catch a cat nap kind of thing, because I've right. gone, I've been at work for 38 hours and never slept. When I come home, my wife is happy to see me. Hey, how's it going, honey? And I grumble at her. And then the first thing I want to do is just take a hot shower and go to bed. Or maybe just go to bed. I'll take a shower and get up. And then that leaves her all like, kind of like, well, what I do? Yeah. Like, she didn't do anything. One of the most fascinating articles I read on sleep, I, it was how sleep disruption destroys a relationship. And I, I oh, just remember the very first point, the first thing that sleep disruption does in a relationship is it kills gratitude. Because it, it does, yes. it makes us cranky. If, I don't know if you had kids, but you know, I've, I have two. And there, you know, as a parent, you know that a sleepover, the night, the day after a sleepover is going to be really hard around five or six o'clock at night. And we know that kids get more cranky without getting sleep. We're still the same human being. We're just older. And so we do get that, this, that all that irritability does come out and it impacts our relationships. And we, we don't know that that's a thing. So we blame it on ourselves and each other. It impacted marriage, it impacted every relationship that you had, because the last thing you spent 36 hours out, you never, you know, your spouse has been at home for that time, and hey, let's go do something. You're like, no, I don't want to do anything. I just want to be here. And can you really even explain why to your spouse? Like, I mean, how much, again, can you debrief? And if you do, are you then vicariously traumatizing them? They they live with you through it. Um, my, My wife is the daughter of a firefighter. And her brother's a firefighter, and she kind of grew up around this whole thing. So she was exceptionally good at it because she already knew what to expect going in a little bit. She's like trauma informed um, just because of the people that um, she's lived it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, therefore, she, she can get, be attracted to me. And I mean, I told her everything that I said, you know, like, just let you know, you'll be my wife. Yes, but I have a mistress, you know. Mm hmm. And she demands, she'll demand all of my time. She's going to call me all the time. I'm going to have to spend lots of time yeah. taking care of her. She's going to want more, but yet you're still my wife. Sometimes that didn't work out so well because there's there a lot of conflicts. But yeah. the problem is I always put my mistress first. I always went yeah. to work because people were depending on me. And doing that, well, and you get and that dependence. also where you were understood, you know, where you yes. didn't have to explain yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. We could all sit there together, those of us, you know, friends, and we 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 knew we were comfortable in each other's company because mm-hmm. we'd been uncomfortable with each other in situations that nobody wants to be in. You could sit well in silence with each other. Yes. Never have to get that question of, what's the worst thing that you've ever seen? Oh, jeez. I'm, I'm so glad we didn't ask that. We didn't ask that, did we? No, we didn't. Okay. No, yeah, like, like that's what's the worst thing you've ever seen? I mean, that's like, I think when, in, in social work, you go out and sometimes pe- I, people just start coming up, they, they talk to you and tell you like horrible things if they know you're a therapist. And it's like, we got to be a little mi- mindful of our professions that work with in vicarious trauma because somebody might be asking that out of curiosity, but that's something that could be a really hard thing to answer. It is a hard thing to answer. And I've come up with a question is, do you want to vomit right now or do you not want to sleep for two days? Yeah. And that usually will push most people off. Yeah. Because I I really don't, I really don't want to talk about it because that means I have to relive it too. Yeah. And I much rather keep it where it's at. Thing that I do with my clients, um, when we talk about how our thoughts affect 
our physical feelings and our emotions. And, and I, I do it almost at least four or five times a week. I had a child that went up just a month in a pediatric oncology ward. And it was a lot of not knowing. And when he was two, and when I start telling the story, I immediately physically feel my face change. And if I were to keep talking about when Miles was sick and my thoughts and my fears or the other families and kids I encountered on the pediatric pediatric oncology ward, whose kids probably wouldn't be going home with them. Within minutes, I will be in tears. I'll be sobbing. And so the, the belief is that I'm sad and I'm experiencing this now. Now, if I shift my thoughts and my words immediately into talking about my best friend, Kara, from high school, my affect changes, I physically feel different. And if I keep telling stories about Kara, I'll, I'll, I'll feel a boost in energy and just peace. And so it's what we talk about. It's whether I believe there's a saber tooth tiger outside my house waiting to attack me or whether there actually is, does not make a difference. It also does not make a difference if I think about their one being out there because my brain's going to respond by producing the chemicals as though that tiger is there. So we do have to be really sensitive to what we talk about in front of our paramedics, our first responders and veterans and police officers and firefighters. And it might seem like a simple curiosity, but you really might be creating a situation where somebody could fall apart and destabilize. And it's so important to at the right time address these thoughts and address the memories and address the stories that are there. Um, Dan Siegel, famous neurobiologist, and, and I love the metaphor or the story that he gives, but he says, if a dog bites you, the worst possible thing that you can do is actually pull your hand back out of the dog's mouth because a dog's jaw is the strongest muscle in their body. And when they clench it, it's locked. So you're gonna cause a lot of damage to your hand if you pull back, which is typically what we wanna do when we have painful memories and we have traumatic memories. The best possible thing that you can do if a dog bites you is actually push your hand forward into the dog's jaw and it releases the clench and then you can pull your hand back without having so much pain. That's the metaphor that I use for people who come and work with me who have been traumatized because I think we're afraid. We have this phobia of, of if I talk about it and I open it up, I'm going to go crazy. But in the right place and in the right time, that's what you need to do. You need to lean into it so that you can pull out and it's not going to cause this clench. I, I think that lean into it too. It, could, it doesn't have to be like direct trauma treatment. Leaning into it could be providing up um, education to first responders on how traumatic experiences impact your brain, providing yeah. education yeah. so they understand why they're doing the things they're doing, yeah. why they're feeling the things that they're doing. And I feel like for some of those people who might not be quite ready to address the trauma yet, even understanding how it impacts their current functioning, their relationships and all of that stuff is really important. And that's all stuff we can do with peer recovery coaching. It says, of course, it says it validates like, yes, like you're you not should feel crazy. this way. How would you, you not feel, feel that way? way. Mm -hmm. you, you are living and surviving through these very, very abnormal times. Of course, mm -hmm. your body is going to react like that. You are not crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's a natural, it's a, it's a rational response to an irrational situation. Because we are inserting ourselves telebehaviorhealth.us, we're inserting ourselves into the conversation with what's happening right now. In the part unrest. Of, part of that with the unrest is that we are overburdening our first responders with responsibilities that they mm -hmm. either have not had adequate training for and that we are not, we're just not putting our money where it belongs with the people that can do the best. Maybe Susie, you could. Well, my, my thought on that one B is, is I feel like we've, we've put a lot of responsibility on first responders, including police officers to, to, provide programming and do things that social workers really have training to do and would probably be better suited to do. So my, my, my thought on that would be how as social workers, can we support first responders? If you figure that out, you'll make a lot of money. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really certain. Let them know what they're going through is, is valid, I guess. How has, how has um, the events, starting with the pandemic, so how, how is life different right now for first responders than it was a year ago at this time? It was way different than people because people were going in and, you know, one person would go in and be masked up and gowned up and ask questions. And then 
see if it was safe for everybody else to come in, but it was a, not everybody just came to the door at one time. It was one person yeah. come in. There was all the cleaning that had to be done in between calls and all the extra supplies that were going through and the supply shortages. And there was the added risk. And then I know some people had, they set up trailers in the yard. So they'd leave their family in the house and they would see each other across the yard and talk to one another, but they wouldn't get close for fear of transmitting that the disease to the family. They were together alone. Uh, I'm, I thought that was really kind of bad because we've, you know, you're taking your first responders and put them in their, in their high school situation. Yet when they go home, they can't be home with their families anymore. They ha- they're at home in their camper in the yard and they can't go see their families for risk of transmitting that disease. When you add isolation into things as a factor, and I think trauma does a really good job over time of creating isolation for people. I also wonder about your isolation and how the injury then took away your, a lot of your social bonds and connections or left you in limited, with limited access to those bonds and connections. When we add isolation, what we see is increases in substance abuse. When we start to reduce bonds and connections, we see an increase in substance abuse. As you see the increased stress with COVID, now you've got these first responders going home and being more isolated. And a lot of more going home and being more isolated, they're actually going to work more and in inject themselves into that because if they couldn't be at home with their families, they might as well be at work, make right. some money to support their families, and then save everybody else that didn't that didn't need to do that. It's kind of being, you know, sacrificing yourself for the betterment of the others. You had brought up the, the point that mar- that marijuana, like substance abuse was high. People chose not to smoke marijuana because of the drug testing, but they would then that leaves them with alcohol, which is a way more impairing, impairing drug. Alcohol increases suicidality at higher rates. Alcohol is, it impairs judgment at higher rates than marijuana. Last time I checked, more people overdose from spinach and romaine lettuce than marijuana. And alcohol is related to 47% of violent accidents, violent um, arrests every year. My thought is if you're given a choice to use something to self-medicate, and with trauma, we know that marijuana, that's something that it helps with because sometimes being a little forgetful is a good thing. Sometimes having those memories a little out of reach because you're a little stoned is good because it prevents them from producing those re-experiencing symptoms. And so we also you can do the know- You the same thing with alcohol, it just takes a lot more. Well, but with it, with alcohol, you also have the increased, all the other risk that that, that is brought on board. Yes. And you then do. with nightmares and sleeping, and we look at how the two impact sleep, there's only two medications out there right now that um, have any clinical significance in terms of nightmares. And nightmares are an absolutely fatal symptom because if it's disrupting sleep, it's going to increase suicidality, impulsivity, and all of that stuff. And those two and medications- it's going to increase chronic inflammatory diseases. Yep. It's going to increase- our eating habits are a little bit off. When heart we're not disease is linked to sleep disruption. Right? Yeah, heart, yeah. just like tons, tons of medical issues are related to it as well. And your social so abuse goes up. It's too bad that first responders aren't given an option in terms of using something that would, we know there's two medications on the market that have clinical significance when it comes to nightmares. One is Prozosin, which is a blood pressure medication, which not everyone can take if you have low blood pressure, like your partner being, being a female and a smaller stature probably has lower blood pressure. So Prozosin wouldn't be a good mix for a, a woman with, with normal blood pressure. And marijuana. Have you tried Prozosin? I'm currently on it. Does it help? Oh, nice. For the nightmares? Yes. Um, and I, I had to get on that because like the spousal abuse. Um, actually, in my nightmares, I was actually violent in my nightmares, and I was actually hitting my wife. Okay. Um, I didn't know I was hitting not, not It wasn't intentional on my part. It was a conscious intention, but I was, I would, I was hitting my wife. A couple times, I, she woke up with, you know, well, I woke up with her beating me because she had a bloody nose. I think it would be abusive if you were like, no, I'm not going to go on a medication to fix this. But it sounds more like a medical no. condition with the, the sleep disruption. So you were waking up with such bad nightmares that you were assaulted in your sleep. Yeah, I was actually, the nightmares, I was actually fighting for my life and my sleep because of just what was going on, what had been in my head for a long time. And then Can I you talk actually, a little bit about how Prozosin helped that. I'm, I'm curious, like you had good, good experience with it. I've had great experience with it. It is, you still dream, mm-hmm. but the dreams are muted. They're not as, as vibrant. They're not as vivid. All of the episodes, cause my dreams, are, of course I dream in color. Mm-hmm. I have 
smells. I'm there. I hear sounds. I mean, it's all Very there. I, 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 I relive it all the time. And I would get in certain situations and, and I talk, apparently I talk in my sleep. My wife tells me I talk in my sleep and I would relive calls and she would talk yeah. to me and I'd answer her and she'd be dispatched and she were, she would play to be dispatched or play to be my partner. Hey, what's going on? And I would tell her what's going on. I'd run down a whole medical list of stuff. Then the patient would get violent and I would get violent back. And then of course my wife ended up being the patient because she was there. What right. it, by taking the brazostin, it just muted it down. It just kind of like Good. put a not so vivid, not so close. It wasn't as affronting. I still have dreams. They're still okay. Sometimes I still have bad dreams, but it's better. Having a medication that can address nightmares like that is so hugely impactful for mental health. Can you also talk a little bit, you you had shared with us, and I appreciate you sharing that you have been in counseling for the last year. Mm -hmm. So, so the prosocin has helped, but how has being in counseling helped? How has the process of being in counseling and talking through some of this really scary stuff that you've had to live through? What's that been like for you? It's been odd because I have to talk to somebody who knows nothing about it. But a lot of it was the first few sessions were were us just talking and kind of developing a relationship with my therapist. She's she's been really great. She she says, "I want you. You're taking the lead on this." I'm like, "What do you mean I'm taking the lead on this? I have no idea what you're talking about." But then I would talk to her about things, and you know, I'm having this problem or I see this, and I would kind of unload on her and then she would kind of repeat it back to me and then mm-hmm. you know she's like well what can you do about this i'm like i don't know i'm so i'm here talking to you but then she'd actually get me to come up with some ideas and then mm-hmm. she'd help me out and explain some of the reasonings and some of the trauma reasonings those physical trauma aspects not it i have the mental stuff too but i also have the physical stuff i still relive mm-hmm. the injuries sometimes Sweet. i have the trauma from your I, own accident on top of the trauma from from being a, a first responder yeah, for many years. Yeah. I relive that. I mean, I would relive it, not in a high-stress situation, but I would relive it, and I would have ticks and tremors. Now that you've been in therapy for a while, when you have those re-experiencing symptoms, are you better able to name them and identify what they are when they come up? Yes. Name them, identify them, go, okay, this is what's happening to me. Okay, mm-hmm. this can happen. This is, one of the side, this is one of the effects of it. Find you understand where it's coming from. Sort of, maybe not exactly where it's coming from, but okay, this is what it is. You can you can put put an end to it and like okay, so this is something that's going to happen, and then essentially everybody talks about the coping mechanisms. Well, I had a few, but I didn't have as many as I do now. She was able to give me mm-hmm. some more coping mechanisms yeah. to understand what was going on and how to work through that. And sometimes it wasn't working through it at all. Sometimes it was just addressing it and going, yes, it's here. All right, now continue on. Actually, the process of what you just went through in the last year is what we call integration of the brain. So what happens is that when you're traumatized and you have those body memories, it's actually it lives in your right side of the brain. And your right hemisphere of the brain is more in charge of like relational, emotional, um, artistic, kind of that that's kind of what it's in charge of but there's no language for the right side of the brain there's no words there's no stories i just have these feelings and they're just chilling and they come up and i and they kind of overwhelm me and they take my breath away so what you've actually been doing is processing with your counselor and giving words to what you're experiencing in the right side of your brain so you're, you're creating this integrative, cohesive story now. With both and, sides of the brain, is that? Yes. And so yeah. we're integrating the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere. So now there's a story. And so when we integrate those stories, it reduces your anxiety and it reduces the symptoms. It changes the meaning of them too. So it could mean really scary catastrophic things about you or beliefs that you think about your future and bring up thoughts of the past that cause more stress. And now the meaning is, this is okay. This is normal. This is what's to be expected. This is something that I can gain some more control over of now. And it's, and it's I'm safe. Yeah. And I'm, I'm here and my feet are on the ground here and I'm safe. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then, you know, these are the things that I can see, touch, taste, smell, you know, grounding yep. mechanisms, and that was a big part of it, and to understand that. And 
my life isn't over that I, you know, I will go on. I, I don't know if I'm able to return back to being a paramedic again. You know, I don't think I'm able to do the street again. I'm, I don't know if it is, it's a ways down the road yet, but we're, we're working on it. So that's what I'm, I have to go for. I'm also curious about your thoughts on individual versus group therapy for paramedics. Like my, my thought would be is if there were groups, therapeutic groups specifically for paramedics to address some of the stuff, if that would be as beneficial or for some, maybe more beneficial way to process trauma. I think an immediate, if you were talking about one particular accident or one particular scene and you get everybody there that was there talking mm -hmm. about it, they've all gone through the similar experience and then it's a shared group feeling mm -hmm. that works very well. But if you get a bunch of us in the room talking about different traumas, it's going to be turned into nothing but a bunch of, you know, we're either not going to say anything at all, or it's going to turn into who, who has the best war story. You know, who's seen what, who's seen this, how about this? I saw this and this. Would someone argue that, that by forming those bonds through sharing those stories is also healing? Oh, it is. It is healing. That's, that's how, We've done it for a long time. We share the stories amongst each other because we can understand. When we, laugh, when we laugh at the things that we laugh at, we're okay with it. But the outside people, the normals aren't. I did CPR and you should have heard the lady's ribs crack. All my, you know, it was, you know, like a big bowl of Rice Krispies. And I'm laughing because I just broke the ribs of some 80-year-old lady who's a grandmother and wife to somebody. And you're like, oh my God, that's so horrible. How do you and cope with it though? I mean, that's the thing is like, like I think that turning it into humor is is a, a, a way to cope with it. And it's not that you're trying to be derogatory or insensitive to anyone. From social workers, I think we develop kind of the same sense of humor. I remember sitting at Meet the Robinsons with my then like six-year-old. And it's about a kid who is has been in and out of foster care. It's a, a cartoon. And my friend who's a social worker was with me. And at one point, the lead character goes, I'm going to my forever home. And he said something really unrealistic. And we both started busting out laughing. And it was like no one else. It wasn't funny unless you were a social worker. Like you, you develop a way of coping with... Um, things that you encounter that people shouldn't encounter, you know? Right. It's, it becomes difficult because you'll get, you know, people who are like, it will cringe back at stuff that we say and we talk about and we laugh about and we kid to each other about. And you have to be okay with it because you're seeing it every day. We're seeing it. It can happen to us any day, every day. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't, but it can, it happen, it's happened to all of us. It will happen to all mm -hmm. of us eventually. Yeah. You joke about it a little bit. You kind of have to because it's. You have to. You know, either either you joke about it and, and that way you can talk about it with a sense of humor and you can tell the story or you end up sitting in a corner sobbing and crying and stuck on your thumb. We're kind of up on time here, but I, I do think that we do have time for like a last round of, uh, of thoughts. Here. I would like to say thank you to Chuck for mm -hmm. coming and for sharing his story. Yeah, I would just like to say thank you um, to Chuck. Sometimes it's not easy reopening these these kinds of stories. So I really appreciate that you were able to come on and share um, with us and what your experience has been. So and thank on you. behalf of the, I would imagine, thousands of lives that you've saved. Thank you. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you. I appreciate coming on the show. Please continue doing the work that you guys are doing because in support of all the first responders, they need, they need the support. We need the, the support and we're so busy doing other things. We just don't have the time to look for that support. So if the support right. can come to them, it would be very helpful. I think there's a lot of ways that we can make that happen together. Yep. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm really looking forward to working with you, Chuck. Uh, welcome yeah, to the team. Yeah, right. I think that there's, um, you know, with every dark cloud, there's a silver lining, and I, I think that, you know, while you're not able to be a first responder right now, I think that you could help us develop programming and provide programming, especially via telehealth, to support other providers. And so I, I think that that you know there's a uh, a lot of good stuff that we could do together to do that to support each other and support first responders and get you back in the workforce. Sounds good. Awesome. All right. So um, uh, with that, uh, again, all the gratitude for the generosity of your time, Chuck. And uh, for our listeners, we'll see you on our next uh, episode of Same Therapy Podcast by Telebehavioral.us.